Hello there and welcome. I'm Pastor James. I serve here at the Glenwood Moravian Community Church in Madison, Wisconsin, and you have found The Essentials, a podcast of ours where we explore our faith, where we talk about what's going on in the world, and hopefully we celebrate a little bit of good news and a little bit of hope that's out there. We have passed through Ash Wednesday. We are into the season of Lent. Here in Wisconsin, things are unusually warm. It feels like we're in the middle of spring here in mid-February. I will take it. It's very enjoyable. It's a nice way to spend the season of Lent. And during Lent, we are happy to bring you a special study. We are calling it Moravian 101. It's five sessions on the Wednesdays during Lent where we are cramming in as much Moravian history, theology, and perspective on the Moravian world today that we can. We figured that it would be a useful tool for people who've gone to the Moravian church for a long time, but might not know the history and where we come from very well. And for those who frankly don't have a clue what Moravians are, who they are, it'd be a great first step in learning a little bit more about us. So on this first episode, we will be talking about uh, the movement that started the Moravian Church uh, up until when it was officially founded. Now, if you know a little bit about Moravian history, the name John Huss might come to mind, and it might be a name that you think is responsible for founding the Moravian Church. And while his influence is certainly important, I don't think we get to the modern-day Moravian Church without the work of John Huss, there were a few key players that helped carry on the movement from him to officially start the church. So we're, we're going to spend time with Huss and some of his ideas and then with the people who took his ideas and beliefs and helped expand them, bring them forward, and start what was called the Unity of the Brethren, which we know as the Moravian Church today. So to begin, we go back to the 1300s, and we trace our roots back to what's modern day, the Czech Republic. We have uh, spiritual ancestors, both in the Bohemia part and Moravia part of the Czech Republic. We have become the Moravians. Now, in the 1300s, it's important to note um, what life was like back then, and specifically how the church functioned back in that time, because the Catholic Church was essentially the church. And it was one of the most powerful organizations on the planet. Empires and the church were intertwined. Leaders in the church had as much power and influence as kings and emperors. So the church was massively important, massive, massively involved in the everyday life of people. But there was also some frustrations with how the church was functioning at that time. There were disagreements on uh, the practice of communion within the church. At that time, only priests had access to the bread and the cup, while the laity or the members of the church only received the bread. People also felt that um, the church was too powerful and had a couple of practices that 
were taking advantage of people or abusing the power that they had. One of those practices would have been indulgences. Say you had a loved one who passed away. The priest would tell you that they're currently in purgatory. But if you offer a donation to the church, if you pay the church, then the priest will pray for your loved one to get into heaven. A pretty obvious abuse of power. Also, simony was popular in the church where you could purchase a church office. You could buy your way into a position of influence. And this frustrated people. There were many who were getting tired of this way the church was functioning, of this sense that the church felt more like emperors and rulers, kings and lords, than the message of Jesus that they read in the Bible. So leading up to John Huss, he was inspired by the work of John Wycliffe. Wycliffe had a uh, a few key pieces he would like to have seen be reformed within the church. Uh, he questioned the power that the church had, and he also questioned the nature of communion. He thought the lay people should have access to the cup, not just the priests. But disagreeing with the church was obviously a big deal, and it brought a great amount of danger to your own life because of the power that the church had. But kind of from that backdrop, from this growing need of reform and growing frustration, we see John Huss emerge on the scene. And he was a figure very um, prominent in the city of Prague. He was a professor at the University of Prague. He was a Catholic priest. He also preached at the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. And over the series of years, he would gain a huge following for his willingness to preach on his frustrations with the church and for their need to be reformed. He was known for, at the Bethlehem Chapel, he would preach five, Sunday, five sermons on a Sunday, five different sermons, often preaching extemporaneously, responding to the feedback and the emotions in the crowd. And he was known for attracting a wide range of people, from servants to students to professors to nobility even. Everyone was interested in what John Huss was saying. And he was inspired by some of the work of John Wycliffe and then expanded on that. And he offered his own critiques and um, issues that he had with the church. And there was a long list of frustrations that he had, things that he hoped the church would reform. A lot of it dealt with the power that the priests had, not just the authority, but their ability and their perceived authority in the place of Christ. I mentioned before the issue of communion, and Huss also believed that the laity should receive the cup, but he was also frustrated that the priests, during the act of communion, as they consecrated the elements, 
they made it seem like they had the ability to turn the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus, that it was something they were doing themselves rather than Jesus making himself present in that moment. He felt like they were overstepping their bounds and playing the role of Jesus in those moments. He also was uh, worried and concerned that priests claimed to have the ability to forgive sins. He believed that Christ was the only authority, authority to do that. Another human can't forgive your sins. Only Christ can do that. But priests claimed to have that power as well. He was worried about the elevation of figures like Mary or saints of the church, that people would pray to them and worship them. And again, he believed that Christ was the true authority, the one person we should be following. He was also frustrated by those practices of indulgences and simony. He, during his life, would live through a period where there were three popes at once. And there was an obvious problem with that. And as the popes vied for power and tried to have influence, eventually every person would be excommunicated by that pope, just by a certain pope, at least, based on one thing or another. And that clearly just didn't make sense to John Huss. He had issues with human authority. He believed that you should be able to Ignore human or secular authority if you are following the law and the teachings of Christ. That Christ's law should come first, and secular and human authorities should be followed only if they are in line with those teachings. He was also someone who began to shape worship as we currently know it. He brought singing hymns into worship. He translated the liturgy into the native language of the people. He preached in a language they could understand. Much of how we experience worship currently stems from some of the things that John Huss implemented. So obviously with these issues that he had and his willingness to speak on them, he was a problem for the church and his willingness to call out the abuse of power and those corrupt practices made him an enemy of the church. So in an effort to silence him, they excommunicated him. He lived in exile for a few years. He was invited to come back to attend the Council of Constance and he believed that maybe he would have the chance to preach and teach to explain his point of view in this moment. But he also knew that there was a chance he'd be arrested, put on trial, potentially killed. Well, the latter was certainly true. He was arrested as soon as he arrived. He was held in captivity for around six months. And over this time, he had dozens of accounts of heresy brought to him, much relating to the issue of human authority and the authority of the church, 
versus the authority that he believed only Jesus has in our lives. And over the course of his captivity, he was offered the chance to recant, offered the chance to apologize for what he'd been saying, to ask for forgiveness, to be welcomed back into the life of the church, but he refused to do so. He didn't think he was preaching or teaching things that weren't true. He stood by what he believed and wasn't willing to go back on his views. Eventually, he was um, deemed to be essentially a spawn of Satan. The church tied him to a stake, put a crown with demons on his head, and then handed him over to the state to be burnt because they couldn't sentence another human to death, but they could instruct the state to do so. Like, they didn't want the blood on their hands. So he was then burned at the stake. They took his life in 1415 for being a heretic, for going against the church, and wanting those places of reform to be made. Now, as often is the case, they thought getting rid of John Huss would silence his movement, would stop his momentum, and that his followers would be intimidated into silence. And as has happened many times in history, the exact opposite turned out to be true. They were motivated by his killing. They viewed him as a martyr. They were more inspired to continue his teachings and to seek reform in the church. So it is true that his movement helped fuel the beginnings of what would be the Moravian church, but the church won't actually be founded until 40 years after his death. And it takes a few figures taking his teachings, expanding on them, in some cases becoming even more radical than Huss would have been. They keep this Hussite movement alive, and eventually we get to a place where Stemming from this need for reform, a new church is founded. And through all of this, it cannot be stressed enough how risky it was for the followers to continue to pursue this. The eventual founding of a new church would be illegal. Their meetings would be viewed as a threat to the Catholic Church. They would be persecuted and their lives would be in danger. During these years after Huss's death, the Hussites um, faced five crusades from the Catholic Church, trying to completely wipe them out, and all five of those crusades failed. The movement of the Hussites was very strong, uh, and they were able to survive, but not without the need of other leaders carrying on this influence. What we'll see in the unity of the brethren that we can tie to Huss quite specifically is this idea that Christ is the only authority in our lives, that even the church isn't an authority over us if they aren't following the teachings of Jesus, and that you should be willing to reject those who have authority here on earth if they aren't following the law of Jesus. 
He also um, believed in the need of constant reform of the church, that the church should evolve, it should respond to what's going on in the world and be willing to change their ways. He had an emphasis on love and grace, on those gifts from God, and that remains present as the unity gets their roots planted. And overall, he believed that faith is completed in love. And love means justice for your neighbor and mercy for your enemies. So that's what we can C is staying true within the unity, but some other aspects are going to come in with the help of other leaders who keep this movement going. Immediately following the death of Hus, a man named Jakobek of Stripbro became his successor at the Bethlehem Chapel. And he continued many of Hus's teachings and in some cases pushed them even further. And the most uh, extreme example of this, while Huss and Wycliffe were frustrated about the lack of the cup being given to the laity, Jakobek started giving communion in both kinds to the people gathered for worship. No longer was the cup just reserved for the priests, but it was given to the lay people as well. It's called communion in both kinds, and those who practiced were called Utraquists. And this was a pretty definitive moment in saying that we are going to explore completely splitting from the Catholic Church. This was kind of a no turning back decision that they are willing to explore this separation of Hussites and the Roman Catholic Church. Eventually, in the 16th century, a, a hundred or so years later, all Protestant churches would be following this practice. It was a key point in what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And it begins here with Jakobek and the Utraquists. Jakobek also was willing to challenge the social order that had been established by the church. There was a great deal of hierarchy from the Pope to the Cardinals to the priests and on down. And he was willing to fight that, to establish a sense of equality within the church. And he was um, frustrated with the cardinal's belief that the social order was necessary. Obviously, they want the power they have to remain, so they need this structure to stay in place. And it is kind of a a parallel in almost an elementary way to the book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Because I think that's what the Cardinals maintained as they viewed communion. If you start giving the cup to the laity in communion, if they see themselves as equal as the priests in that moment, then they're going to start to want more. They might want to be involved in church leadership. They might want to serve roles within the church. Eventually, if things get really crazy, women might want to serve in the church. Women might read the Bible or want to become uh, priests or pastors. And this was 
an outrageous thought for the cardinals and for the structure of the church. They didn't want the social order to get flipped on its head quite like that. So Jakobek continued this practice of offering communion to the laity, the bread and the cup, faced constant persecution from the church. He would be uh, a part of facing those crusades that the church sent against the Hussites. But they were able to defeat those crusades. They were able to persevere, although what they were doing was illegal and a great heresy for the life of the church. But he kept the movement going. He was willing to take what Huss was preaching and expand on it, make it even more radical. And following Jakobek, we come to a man named Peter Helshiki. He had lived in Bohemia. He went to Prague when he was young and would have probably heard Huss preach. Um, he probably would have in interacted with Jakobek as well. And he takes a, a place of leadership in this Hussite movement as well. But he also expands on many of Huss's teachings. And it's his influence that plays a big part in what becomes the theology of the unity of the brethren. He's known today as the father of modern pacifism, which is still a key part in the Moravian church and has been throughout its history to be pacifists. Um, his followers would be persecuted, would be at the hands of violence, and simply would not respond. He believed the teachings of Jesus were clear that responding in violence is not the way. He, like Jakobek, was in favor of offering communion in both kinds, of offering the cup to the laity, but he thought wine in communion is great, but it's only a place to start when it comes to following more of Christ's law in the Bible. Now, Christ, as he institutes the Last Supper, offers this practice, and he's encouraged that it's becoming a reality in the life of the church. But there are plenty of Christ's teachings that they're still struggling with. Christ taught no violence. He taught no swearing oaths. To not be angry, to not be lustful, to love your enemy. And he believed that we should be following those teachings as well. That while the church has gained such power and influence... We should be following Christ in ways of sacrifice, of self-control, and even suffering. He believed that if Christians aren't suffering persecution, then we're too at home in the world. We're too comfortable and probably aren't doing enough to mirror the life of Christ. He also brought uh, a different understanding as we view scripture. He so highly viewed the new law that you find in the New Testament, in the teachings of Jesus, that he was willing to say that it was superior to the Old Testament. That the accounts in the Old Testament should only be read in light of the love and grace that we find in Jesus. And that 
what we find in the Old Testament, often stories where God is violent or God is a figure to fear, that those images should be replaced with the sacrificial love of Christ. Now, saying that the Old Testament is inferior to the New Testament is an extreme thing to say, to to have that view of Scripture. It, it maybe isn't such an intense view that Moravians have held over the years, um, but we are Christ-centered. Um, we follow the teachings of Jesus, and, and if that means... Um, changing how we view the Old Testament scripture, then that is something we certainly do. And finally, um, Helsinki also was someone much like us who was willing to completely reject secular authority. He believed in the teachings of Jesus as being superior, that the law of Christ is what we need to follow, and if that means disobeying society's rules and regulations and orders. That's something you have to be willing to do. Christ is the only authority in our lives. He's also the first to suggest the need to separate the church and the state. Now, he lived at a time where the two were so intertwined. The power of the Pope was much like the power of an emperor or a king, and while we might not be at that level 600 years later, we still struggle with the separation of church and state. It is still an issue that we deal with quite a bit. And he was the first to offer that need for reform within the life of the church. Now, Peter Helsicki would be... Um, Continuing Huss's movement, and finally, his ideas and his writings um, would reach the ears of a man named Gregory, someone we call Gregory the Patriarch today. And he is who will eventually establish the unity of the brethren, a new Christian community an official and final split from the Catholic Church. Gregory was greatly inspired by the writings of Helsinki, but it took a while for, um, for him to get to a point where something like establishing a new church would become a reality. He had moved to Prague, uh, again, Prague being a central place in this movement and in this idea of reforming the church, um, he would have heard from the teachings of Jan Roynaka. He was someone who followed Helsinki, and Roynaka was the uncle of Gregory. And eventually, Gregory's uncle hands him the writings of Helsinki the teachings that he was offering, and Gregory is incredibly inspired. So he and a group of his friends gather as much of Helsinki's writings as they can, and they essentially form a book club. They're studying together these teachings, they're seeing these wonderful ideas, and as they reflect on his writings, they look around and see the church still functioning 
much like it did when Huss was still alive, that even those who were inspired by Huss's movement had reverted back to their old ways. And with this kind of frustration in mind, um, he wanted to continue this movement of reform. He moves to a remote location, um, a city called Kuhnwald, and he has the blessing of a priest there um, who's willing to, to let him explore this idea and continue these discussions. And as he continues to read Helshiki, as he continues to imagine a different way of being Christians, um, he starts to drift from his uncle Reinaka because Gregory is starting to seem more and more radical, more and more out there um, to the established church. Some of the key beliefs that Gregory and his friends had, um, again, was that Christ is the head of the church, is the sole authority in our lives. We follow his example, not human authorities. They also emphasized spiritual equality, that the church should be a family, not uh, operate like a business, that there should be a great element of care and compassion in a Christian community. Much like us, he believed that faith is complete in love. The brethren believed that redemption was possible, that people could change, and most importantly, they could change the way they treat each other. They could reach a more perfect union with one another in their relationships by following the teachings of Jesus. So in 1457, they establish the unity of the brethren, their new Christian community. They intentionally don't label it a church, um, perhaps to stay in secret, to not attract so much attention, but also because the name church um, had lots of baggage with people's frustration with the church, with the sense of power that that name had in their world. They avoided calling themselves a church. Their community continued to grow about 10 years after their community began. They went through a process of establishing their own priesthood, their own pastors and leaders for their congregations. They used the lot to determine if this was the correct route for them to take. It was their way of inviting the Holy Spirit into their decision-making. And this was obviously a huge deal. This was another step in officially abandoning the Catholic Church, starting something new, and doing so was illegal. This was not allowed. Through the help of the lot, they elected three people to be their pastors, to be their leaders, and Matthew of Kuhnwald, ironically the youngest of the three, was selected as the head of the church. With Matthew's help, they established a collegial governance with um, a group of clergy um, overseeing the work of the church and pastors serving in more local congregations, kind of how our church is still structured today. Um, the local congregations were served by their priests, and the priests were under the authority of Matthew and the inner council. Important to the brethren, along with 
Um, many of those teachings that they carried from us to Halshiki was the idea that their church doctrine, their church beliefs, needed to be revised constantly. According to the needs in society at the time and according to what was going on in the world, that the world is evolving and changing and the church needs to be able to change with it and to be able to evolve when we reach new understandings of scripture. That doctrine can't be set in place to be followed forever. It needs to change and evolve as the world does. Under Matthew's leadership, they would begin this understanding of what was the essentials, the ministerials, and the incidentals, something that Luke of Prague would expand upon in years to come. And still today in the Moravian Church, we say in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. Um, and there are many ways that that catchy motto um, can fit into this idea of the essentials, the ministerials, and the incidentals. The brethren also adopted Helshiki's argument um, and Jakobek's argument for total and complete pacifism. They weren't going to respond to violence with violence. They emphasized simplicity and humility within their community, an idea of self-sacrifice and service, that that's what following Christ looked like. And they believe that their church, their community, should be a voluntary society. You can't force people to be involved. You can't keep them from leaving if they wish to do so. And even if someone's parents are involved as a kid, as you grow up, you don't have to stay connected. This is something people need to want and desire to be a part of. Also interesting for the unity of the brethren, they were ahead of their time in elevating the roles of women in their community. Um, still uh, stringing from the Catholic Church, they started um, continuing the practices of the seven sacraments that the Catholic Church has, one of those being confession. And for them, confession could be um, something brought to a man or a woman. And it wasn't that you confess so that the priest or the person um, you're speaking with forgives your sin, um, tying in with us with the idea that that's not something for them to forgive. They don't have the power to do that. But the person that you confess to, this um, responsibility in the community is there to talk with you about it, to walk you through the issue that you are having and to help you find a solution. It's not confession to check off a box and say that you did it. It's to help you through this issue that you're having. And again, completely ahead of their time to offer that role and responsibility to women in their community as well. Something that the Moravian church will continue to do throughout its history as they elevate women in their communities, in their congregations, um, and value their influence much more than some of the contemporary um, churches of their time would have done. So from Hus to Jakobek to Helshiki, finally to Gregory the Patriarch, 
uh, a little over 40 years after Huss's death, the unity of the brethren is established. Still uh, dealing with persecution, still um, a threat and something in contradiction to the Catholic Church. What they did was risky and illegal, um, but they were able to found their church and begin um, what becomes the history of our Moravian church today. So hopefully if you knew about John Huss, if you knew that he was kind of our spiritual grandfather, now you hopefully know just a little bit more about the key figures who helped carry his movement to the actual founding of the church. Um, because we don't get a Moravian church without the others who continued his message after his death. So that's where we're going to stop for this episode. Now that we have a unity of the brethren in place, now that the Moravian church has officially begun, we'll pause here for now. For our next episode, we will pick up with Luke of Prague. We will continue to discuss the idea of the essentials, the ministerials, and the incidentals, something that remains key for our theology today and um, offers us the ability to agree to disagree as we view beliefs and what's important in congregational life. Um, as long as things point to what's essential, there is a lot of room for differing opinions different structure, different practices. Um, and that's a great thing for us to unpack for our next episode. So thank you for joining us. We hope you continue to check in for these episodes during the season of Lent um, to give you a better idea of the Moravian Church today. So you can check out the church that I serve, the Glenwood Moravian Community Church. You can find us on Facebook. You can check out our website, can join us for worship on YouTube, or if you want to explore the Moravian Church a little more for yourself, you can go to moravian.org. So thank you again for listening. Take care. I'll catch you next time.